Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to ask your forgiveness. It's been a crazy uh, week for me, so I didn't do as much uh, background reading as I usually would, which means there's going to be a little bit more of my own ramblings. So just put up with me if you don't mind. Um, we will do uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and 8, because um, I was originally going to do just 7, but um, 8 we've dealt with actually a little bit before both in Romans as well as in the intro. So it might not require as much uh, background talk. So we'll do that. Okay. Um, we will plow through it. Name it. Okay. Chapter 7. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together. Come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, it, to separate, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound, for God has called us to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Never mind. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brethren, in whatever state each was called, there let him remain with God. 
Now concerning the unmarried, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of present distress, it is well for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek marriage. But if you marry, you do not sin. And if a girl marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I mean, brethren, the appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as those that, as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the former, this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or girl is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So that he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband dies, she is free to be married whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I have the Spirit of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if one loves God, one is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father who, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, though, being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Only take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. The grace of God the Father be with you all. Amen. Okie dokie. So, um, two heavy um, chapters from St. Paul. Um, so, the two are separate topics. That's why originally I was going to do just seven on its own. But I think um, we should be able to get through both. If we're running short, we'll do that. 
Um, so in chapter seven, um, this is awkward because like no one has their camera on except one. Um, in chapter seven, um, St. Paul is actually responding to, thank you. Um, St. Paul is responding to a letter that, um, that he received um, from them because he's saying, now I'm writing to you the matters about what you wrote. Um, and just like we talked about last time, it's important for us to pay attention to this time um, because St. Paul is often quoting them and their slogans. Um, and so if you don't know that, you might think St. Paul is giving an opinion that he doesn't really have, when actually often what he's doing is taking a slogan um, and correcting it. Um, he's forming a corrective from it. Um, and so, for example, when he says, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, it actually seems like he's quoting them. Okay, and what he's saying here, not touch a woman in plain English is um, not to have sex is, is actually what they're talking about. So this, this chapter is dealing a lot with, with marriage and, and the expression of, 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 of conjugal union within the marriage, which is a, is a touchy subject. Um, so he's saying, okay, the things that you wrote about, okay, yeah, you're saying it's, it's, it's good for a man not to have relationships with his wife. But then what St. Paul is saying, but because of temptation to immorality, um, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Um, I'm, I'm just going through it again. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't rule over her body, but the husband does. The husband doesn't rule over his own body, but the wife does. Again, the orthodox view of marriage is this oneness of the two that is granted by God. And we're going to come back to that because he, sep he differentiates um, a secular marriage from a religious marriage, um, but he still refers to both as marriage. He doesn't say that one's not a marriage, but that there's a different kind of marriage, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. And so he says, don't refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. And then he says, I say this by way of concession, not of command. So that's then of verse six. So it seems that the people in Corinth um, had some confusion about sexuality um, in, among Christians. Um, I think we still have that. Um, and Paul's own teaching from whatever he first said to them, because they're applying to him, seems to have also been part of the cause of their confusion. Um, and so that's why they're, they're responding to him and, and, and saying what they are. So it seems like they're not sure about the place of sex within marriage and about the marriage itself. Um, and it also appears that some of the believers in Corinth thought that sex was... Um, was not just permissible for people outside of marriage, which some aspects of Roman culture allowed, but that you should stop even within marriage. Okay. And so that's why St. Paul's having to give a, a, a corrective of saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on. Um, and so Paul is rejecting the notion, like completely rejecting the, the idea that sexual abstinence is appropriate for married believers, which is funny because I think many people today still view it as something dirty within a couple. Um, I mean, it's awkward for me, I'm a celibate, but um, 
But what he's saying is that you can agree for special periods of time to abstain. No problem. But he's saying, but make that an agreement. Nobody should impose it on the other. Okay, and we're going to get more into that. So he sees marriage and sex within it as being an exclusive re relationship of mutuality. And actually, St. Paul is extremely realistic, right? St. Paul is saying that actually, if you try and overforce abstinence within the marriage, all you're going to do is send everybody out to temptation, right? The consequences that people are going to be looking to, quote unquote, satisfy their needs in an unholy way. Um, so St. Paul is saying, no, if you're going to do it, do it for a brief period and do it in agreement with one another and for a positive reason, not because you think it's wrong, but because you're choosing to focus on something else. The same way as when we fast in general, right? That's actually part of the reason why the church has lumped sexual relationships with fasting. Because it's, it's just seen as another thing to abstain from, not because it is itself wrong, but it's part of fasting. And again, that can have its own absolutions, but I'm, I'm not discussing that um, per se, unless you have questions. But, um, and so he's saying that each in the marriage, the husband and the woman, needs to fulfill the appropriate conjugal needs of the spouse. But in contrast to the pagan world, he's telling them not to engage in sex with other people. Right? It wasn't crazy to hear of orgies, sorry, um, in Roman times. That was a thing they're described historically, right? And so St. Paul is saying, no, those are not, those are not okay. Um, today, I think we still do that, whether we call it open marriage or swinging and all this other stuff that we, we, we do culturally now, that's saying that's not a thing. And so even though St. Paul hasn't yet used the word love in these verses yet, um, he's describing what we're going to get to in chapter 13 about love, of this self-denying. Um, I was looking at some of the patristics of this because I wanted to see how the early church looked at this issue of sexuality. Um, and it's interesting because I'm going to even quote a father that's not a father. He's actually a condemned heretic, but he was a great exegete, um, Theodoret of Cyrus. I don't like him. He didn't like St. Cyril and vice versa, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to read you uh, one of the things that he said that I found interesting. Um, Human laws demand that women be chaste, and if they are not, they are punished for it. But they do not demand the same from men. So Theodoret is pointing out a cultural standard where, that women are, are usually frowned upon if they were not um, pure. And then he says, since it was men who made the laws... Um, so you've got a, a feminist of the fourth century. They did not make themselves equal with women, but allowed themselves extra indulgence. So he is pointing out the, the cultural um, inconsistency that women were held to a standard and men weren't. And he's pointing out it's because men wrote the law. And he's saying, but look at the apostle, look at St. Paul. He's saying, inspired by divine grace, that chastity applies to men too. Um, I found that interesting. It was nice to, to, to see that view coming from the fourth century. And actually, incidentally, St. Cyril and him, even though they couldn't stand each other and, and Theodoret hated him, St. Cyril actually often himself read Theodoret's exegesis of the Bible, just to show you how different like, the early fathers were. But um, John Chrysostom, a celibate, said that great evils spring 
from this sort of continence if it is overdone. So he's saying when, when people overdo abstinence within marriage, it can actually cause a major problem, great evils. Adulteries, fornication, destruction of families have often resulted from this. If a married man commits fornication, how much more will he do so if his wife denies herself to him? Unless there's mutual consent, consent continence in this case is really a form of theft. And even Blessed Augustine says, it's not arduous and difficult for faithful married people to do so for a few days, but holy widows have undertaken which holy virgins do throughout their lives. So let devotion be kindled and self-gratification be checked. So what all of these people are saying, which I think is important for us to, to, to look at, um, is you've got to balance this fasting and also paying attention to another's needs, right? Christ Austin went as far as to say that if you deny your spouse, that's theft. And he's speaking about both, right? And I do, I, I care to say it because I, I, I have seen in many, not just one, many, many, many marriages that sometimes there is an inappropriate um, abstinence. Forgive me for getting into it, but the Bible is supposed to be relevant and it, it is. Um, where people will want to abstain for good reasons and bad reasons, but it's not mutual. Um, and if it's not mutual, you're actually harming your spouse, right? And you also may make your spouse to feel like they're dirty or less holy um, or, or that they're, they're less in control of themselves because you're trying to pursue some righteous standard. And that's not okay. Because if you've joined as one body, to some extent your asceticism is one as well. There might be some individual um, room for how you practice your asceticism and how you abstain, etc. But you've got to be very careful in your personal asceticism, especially as a married person, with how it affects your spouse. In the same way for a monastic, forever, for example, has to be careful of how his personal or her personal asceticism affects the community. That if you're going to take a decision about how you want to practice some form of asceticism, it can't be at the expense of other people. That's an important spiritual concept to, to have in your mind, right? So you can't, for example, decide to take like, um, like if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're, sorry, a nursing mother, right? You can't decide, for example, to eat once a day with almost new nutrients. You're now harming a baby. Right? So you've got to be careful about, about what you do with one another. And that specifically with what St. Paul is talking about with sexuality is to identify that sex is not in and of itself wrong. And so that if you're going to abstain, have in your mind for what reason you're abstaining um, and that it's done with mutual consent. So that you're not ever doing it because you're of some belief that there's something wrong with it. There's not. That's why I was like, it was inter I intentionally, I don't, haven't talked much about the fathers before, but I'm intentionally bringing them in to say, even these fathers who all three of whom were celibates, I mean, Augustine's an exception. He had a, a baby out of wedlock before he got ordained, but the other two were celibates and they're saying, guys, don't do that. Don't do that to, to one another. Then St. Paul goes on verse seven to say, I wish that all were as I myself am. Um, I'm, I'm with you, Paul. Um, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Um, I wanted to stop here to, to talk a little bit too, is to say that note that both are called gifts. Um, the problem with callings 
in our modern society, I think to some extent, is sometimes we covet each other's callings, okay? And so both callings are needed. There is a gift of marriage and there is a gift of celibacy. And I don't know that we always recognize that both are gifts, right? We tend to talk about only one of them being a gift. And the other issue I think is that sometimes we pit gifts against each other or we speak defensively um, and I think that this arises from an opinionated climate, like the Corinthian climate, and very much our modern climate is a very opinionated climate. Okay, so what I mean is that sometimes when someone says, I like so-and-so, often people feel the need to retort um, why another thing is better, even though no comparison was being made. So for example, you might be like, oh man, like, I love those monks, they're amazing. And then somebody goes to respond by being like, what's, so, what's the problem with somebody being married? And so I, I didn't say anything about married people. I was just saying like, I, I love those monks. Like that, that's it, that's all I'm saying. Actually, I made this mistake with a Misravian um, on a recent visit to California myself. So I call people out on it, but I do it. He made some comment about St. Cyril and about St. Dioscorus. And I started defending St. Dioscorus. Satan looked at me, he's like, I don't know what your problem is. I like them both. I wasn't, I wasn't insulting St. Dioscorus. I was just praising Cyril. Um, and it's like, touche. Um, so like, we've got to be careful when we're, when, we're, when we're talking that we don't do things in comparison. Because today I think, for example, celibacy is either overvalued or totally mocked. Like I haven't met too many people that are like in the middle recognizing that it's, it's, it's a, a particular kind of gift. So St. Paul is very confident in his celibacy. And so he says that he wishes it for all. He'll explain in, in verses 22 to 36 why he feels that way. He hasn't explained it yet. Um, but he's, he, he says, yeah, I, I wish everybody were like me. Um, and again, we'll, we'll get to the why, just not now. But if celibacy is a gift, this is why, in, in my view, one should not seek out a particular calling. But instead, wait and see what the Lord has in mind. Okay? Most celibates that I know found themselves with no understanding of why they weren't desiring a married relationship or any kind of intimacy. This is not to say that they didn't have battles of lust. I'm talking about a, a desire for intimacy, a desire to be in a marriage. Many celibates that I know, the majority of celibates that I know, especially those that believe they were called, that desire was just not there, it was just gone. That's just naturally in other people um, where they, they, they feel the want for companionship. And St. Paul is gonna say over and over, it's not sin. It's not sin to have that desire. Um, and so they found themselves, like these celibates, just not needing or wanting to be married. It was a gift. That's not natural, right? It's a gift. It is not the natural way. Man and woman are designed sexually. So it is not natural that one desire to not have the other. And so they weren't fighting against a desire for marriage or their need or want for a relationship. They were simply not in that kind of relationship. It's different. 
Um, I'm saying that because a lot of people don't understand celibates. And it's very dangerous, in my view, very dangerous to fight a natural inclination within you that isn't wrong. Okay? If you do this, you will not be yourself in the position. Um, when I was a novice at St. Anthony's Monastery, I was given the cell of somebody who had left after three years as a novice, three plus years as a novice. And the poor guy, um, he had been engaged to be married. And his fiance broke it off a week before the wedding and their honeymoon was supposed to be in California. Um, so he's like, well, I paid for the ticket. I guess I'll go. Um, and so he went and he went to the monastery. Now, of course, in a highly emotional state, right? He looked at everyone around him and they were happy and they're celibate. He was like, you know what? Maybe God was working this all for my good. I'm going to leave it all. I'm going to be a monk. And so um, I, the guy stayed. I, I didn't meet him. I don't even know his name. But he um, apparently had written all over the walls something like chastity, 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 purity, purity, like all over the walls, um, which to me is a sign of what his warfare was, <laughs> right? And so what I'm trying to get at is that's not the right place for him. Clearly, this guy wanted to get married. He was going to get married that week, right? And so if you fight a natural inclination within you that's not wrong, you're going to suffer, that's why that guy was suffering. He ended up leaving and he married the same girl. I'm glad he got a happy ending. But um, had he not left and married that girl, be a very scary person because the formation of his life is around something false, right? And his expression of love isn't going to be complete because he's denying his natural gift. That's why I'm saying all of this this gift of, of marriage to pretend to have a gift that he does not have. And so he's not going to flourish. He would not have flourished. In the same way, like if God forbid I had gotten married, poor woman, like whoever she would have been, because it's not me, right? Like it would have been like, I don't know why you're in my house. Um, so it's, it's, it's that we have to recognize the gift that God has given to each of us. Celibacy is holy. Marriage is also holy. Do not pit the two against each other. Often, sometimes when I have youth coming to me to discuss monasticism, um, they try and pull tricks that I myself tried to pull when I was young. Um, but one of the first things I'll often ask them is, what do you think of marriage? Because if they're like, oh, you know, like they're good and everything, but like, you know, I want to pursue this unhindered like way of God and like, I just want to devote my, like, no, that's not why, right? Or I often ask, what do you think a monk is? I'm not going to give the answer so that nobody cheats when I ask them that. Um, later, <laughs> he will write that it allows for undistracted devotion to the Lord. But we'll, 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 we'll come to that. So what I want to say is that Paul is here actually not opposed to sex at all. Even in his praise of celibacy, as we're going to get to, it's not because of the sex part. Okay, um, because I think sometimes we think ascetics are anti-sexuality. They're not. Um, and if St. Paul is one of the, the most preeminent of us celibates, right? My order is named after him, the St. Paul Brotherhood, right? It's, it's not founded upon anti-sexuality. That is not healthy. 
okay? And we have to be very careful of that in how we talk and how we teach our kids. Um, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do, but if they can't exercise self-control, let them marry. It's better to marry than to be a flame of passion. Um, what it seems to mean here, I think unmarried here, the language, um, might mean widowers, a male widow. So he's talking now first to male and female widowers, right? Widows, people have lost their, their spouses. He's saying, okay, if you have your spouse has passed away, I'm saying that it's good for you to remain single like me, right? And because of possibly because of the way he viewed marriage. And he's like, but even then, if that's too hard for you, okay. And he's not saying it sarcastically, right? He's not saying like, oh, but if you can't handle it because you're not as spiritual as me. No, he's just saying, okay, it would be good for you to be able to benefit from celibacy. But if it's too hard for you, okay, no problem. Go ahead, get married. Um, and what's beautiful, I think, here is he's showing that fighting your natural inclination, right? He's not saying, you filthy perverts, part of my language, who are so sexual that you can't handle being single. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you, if you, if you can't, that, that could actually have devastating effects if you try and fight your natural inclination. So he's actually saying, no, go ahead. Like, like, because I think we, we, we get very negative sometimes in spirituality um, where we, we want to call everything wrong. <laughs> not everything is wrong. Um, if you need to get married, cool, go get married. Um, and he's not putting down marriage as though it's a thing for the weak. But again, just saying that not everyone has the gift of celibacy. It's not wrong to leave. Um, it's not wrong to leave your celibacy, even if it's forced upon you by the death of a spouse. Um, so be careful never to wrongly promise yourself to God. Okay? You can't promise something to God that is a gift. Right? That's why like, my understanding of my own vow, and I said it to my bishop, is I'm sorry, I cannot vow celibacy. I cannot vow chastity. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I cannot vow something that's a grace from God. Right? I can pledge myself to my commitment towards it. But how could it, like, it's like when people make these fake promises to saints and stuff, and they're like, you know what, if you give me this, I'll never do this sin again. I'm like, yeah, you will. Give it like a month at most, right? Two, if you're lucky, you're going to do it. Don't promise something that's, that, you can't, that you can't promise. To the married, so that was the widows. To the married, I give charge. Here emphasizes, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Note that all these instructions are always mutual. They're always to both the men and the women. Every single thing in this chapter, he says to both. This is the basis, because people wonder, of separation in the church rather than divorce. Because even though Paul refers her to woman speaking, which is a big deal, by the way, but she, he's showing that she's not property because he's saying she has the authority to leave. So if he viewed it as just some piece of property, she has no right to say, I'm going to leave. Only the male would. Okay, but he's making it very clear, clear the equity of, of the woman in this relationship, that it's a relationship of equals. But he's saying if the woman chooses to leave, okay, but not to, not to do more than separation. And likewise, the male do not divorce. And separation here seems to serve the purpose of two things in what he's saying. 
possible reconciliation. So one of the goals of, separate, of separation is reconciliation. It's important for us to realize that. That the goal of separation is not saying the, the solution to your problem is separation. It's saying maybe we need to separate you two so that you come back together. In the same way, for example, that he's called for the expulsion of that other man in the church with the goal of him returning. Right? That is saying that when we take that measure, there's a goal of reconciliation. And the other reason for separating being allowed rather than divorce is actually respecting that God commanded that what the Lord has united, let no man put asunder. Right? From Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, from Mark and from Luke. John's the only one who didn't talk about it, probably because he was celibate. Woefully today, okay, people just want divorce. And separation today seems to me to serve as just a step towards divorce rather than a step away from divorce, as St. Paul is saying. It's a completely different mentality. And moreover, like to, again, to point to these two points that St. Paul, Paul is making, people don't really respect the mystery of the union anymore, that something sacramental happened in marriage. Something mysterious happened in marriage that the two have become one. In my view, better not to marry than to desecrate the gift. So that's my view. I, like, the problem to me is not so much in the divorces as much as it is maybe some of these people should never have gotten married. That's my personal view. Like, I often wonder, like, why did you get married to begin with? What was, your, what was your objective? Was there anything sacramental about it? Did this have anything to do with God? Or was that what you dressed it up in because you like the crowns and the party, the zagarit and the dancing? Like, which one was it? No offense, I'm not trying to take jabs. In the same way, monastically, if you're doing it because you like the galabeya and you want people to kiss your hand, good luck, bro. Or sis. Um, divorce is to the marriage gift to the gift of marriage, what fornication is to the gift of celibacy. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. Each of them desecrates the gift. Each of them desecrates the gift. Each of them are forgivable. It's not about whether or not God looks at us with mercy or not. There's not a question of God's mercy. It's a question of how you view the relationship. That's the real question. And I don't mean to be all negative because there's beautiful stories of people's devotion to one another as well. Um, I'm bringing up the negative because we live in a culture where you're not likely to even get married statistically. I'm not talking about the church. And if you do get married, the odds are much more against you than they are for you. In Mexico, they were actually um, proposing auto-expiring marriage licenses to not have to deal with the legal work of, of the majority of people divorcing. Like, let's make it easier by just having people automatically divorced and to come in if they want to stay married. That's, that's the state of the world, folks. Um, so he's briefly addressed widowers. He's briefly addressed two Christians in a marriage. And now he's going to deal with the particular case of those who converted to Christianity post-marriage and have one spouse who is not a believer. Note that he is not talking about getting married to a non-believer. He's talking about those who that was already the case. 
because it does make a big difference because we will try and use this to be like you should marry me in church saint paul said this and and what if i sanctify him and who do you think you are and, and all that kind of jazz so to the rest i say and this is what i love about saint paul not the lord okay saint paul is emphatically saying jesus said nothing about this i'm saying this okay um that if any brother has a wife who's unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her and vice versa. Okay, to men and women. He says, for men and women, for the unbelieving spouse is consecrated through his spouse or her spouse. I'm just paraphrasing. And the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner wants to desire, desire to separate, let it be. That brother or sister is not bound, for God has called us to peace spouses how do you know whether or not you might save your husband so saint paul is saying okay if you are in the situation where your spouse doesn't want to convert no problem you are not required to leave them as a matter of fact maybe you will do a lot of good by staying I'm saying the only difference is that because this is not a sacred union in the sense of it was not joined together in the mystery, you are not bound. It isn't the Lord who put you together. Consequently, if you would like to leave, you may leave. Okay? This is so interesting to me, personally. Um, very, very interesting, because there's a lot of history to the, the, the institution of marriage. Um, and we might talk a little bit about it, but um, some people want vows in a wedding service and if I can rant a little bit that irks me to no end because it misses what St. Paul is saying he's saying dudes and dudettes um, you don't make you one God does that's why he can make the separation you can stand in front of the altar and say whatever the heck you want. You'll probably break every one of those vows you make. But it's not what made you married. God did. And so the, 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 the Orthodox marriage, the Christian marriage, is that the source of our union is God. The goal of our union is God. If those are not how you think, I hope you get on it or your marriage is wrecked. Because I often ask people, I'm like, why do you want to get married in the church? Because Christian marriage is not the same as secular marriage. Christian marriage has its third party, God, who is the standard. So that when you are in an argument, for example, and, and unless you're the super holy righteous people who have never argued, I haven't met you yet, you may discover because of the standard of truth that you're both wrong because the truth is not laying in one of you. The strength of your marriage in a Christian marriage is not dependent on your own personal patience, which is limited. It's something outside of you that unites you in spite of how you feel about one another. That is not to say that people are not virtuous in marriage. Thank God there are so many very virtuous people in marriage. And there are many people who, who both spouses are believers 
and the faithfulness of one is saving the other. It's beautiful. I don't want to only be, be negative. There's a lot of beautiful things that are happening in the church. Thank God. What I am saying is that the source of your loyalty, the source of your, of your everything is God, not yourselves. And that, the, that each spouse should be pushing the other towards the Lord. So that if one spouse is pursuing something wrong, the other spouse should say that's wrong. Not selectively, but based on the gospel. Anyways, I digress. So, St. Paul here is saying that he's giving a personal opinion, which I really like, okay? Um, because we forget that sometimes that that's permitted. Um, but he says intentionally and actively, this is what I think. I happen to think personally <laughs> that his opinion, unlike mine, matters, right? And St. Paul says so himself. He goes, I think I'm an apostle. I, th I, think, I think I speak with the Spirit. Because, I mean, the dude had Jesus appear to him and, and teach him for a few years. I think that means a lot more than some dude from Canada. Paul is suggesting here that the unholy part of the marriage, not in Christ, can move toward Christ. So the direction of what he's talking about is from unholiness to holiness, and that's why he's sanctioning it. Here he's also saying that a marriage not between Two Christians is permissible for the separation if the non-Christian demands it. And I also just want to point out, I'm not going to spend much time on it, it's very interesting here that he still refers to the secular marriage as marriage. Okay? He didn't say to them, uh, you're not really married. But he speaks to the holiness of the marriage instead. A Christian marriage is final and a non-Christian is not necessarily. Right? That's why I, a lot of people are mad at the church today. I, I just happen not to be about its policy on divorce. Like, I really agree. We either don't believe in divorce or we do. Right? I'm, I'm not... I'm not um, I get that, that sometimes that it may need to happen. I'm not trying to weigh in and say anyone who's divorced is, 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 is bad. I'm not. What I am saying is that the church has to be very clear on what she believes about divorce. Because I think St. Paul is. Um, I think, more importantly, the, the Lord is. Um, and so it's important for us to realize that the basis of what we say cannot be personal conjecture. That's why St. Paul here said this is personal conjecture. This one's up to you. What's not personal conjecture is the holiness of the marriage and the unity of the marriage and the not separating is what he said. Okay, so that, that's where he himself drew that line. I think that's an important one. Um, and again, I'm not attacking those who may have been divorced. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm simply saying that what we believe about marriage irrespective of what happens as a consequence of our frailty as humans, and we are all frail, needs to be clear. Um, another important concept here is that sometimes we run away from uncomfortable positions. Rather than to ask, what if God wants, me, wants to use me here? Right? So like here he's saying to those spouses, he's like, if you don't need to leave, don't leave. What if, what if you're going to sanctify your spouse? Right? When I like, think about, for example, the first immigrants to North America, from, from the Egyptian community anyway, they were in a very uncomfortable position. There weren't any Coptic Orthodox churches around. 
right? It was completely unchartered territory. They actually worked miracles. They really did. It's not the kind of miracles we're used to, but they did. The key here though is not for you to initiate something stupid. Okay, let necessity cause the thing rather than your ego, just so that nobody's just like, oh, maybe I should go to the club. Maybe God will use me there. No, like you don't, you don't initiate something that might not be, be right. But if you are by necessity in a certain situation, maybe God actually wants to use you. Um, that's something that we can take from this beyond just the marriage. Um, so for example, those who are going to the West from Egypt, they were originally going because of mostly necessity. They weren't going saying, oh, let's start a new project of building churches in random countries, right? They were saying, I need to leave here. Let us then do, let us then do this. That's, that's the, the difference between that. Hi, Habibi. Um, okay, verse 17 to 36. I'm going to plow through this and just rephrase it as I go. Um, let everyone lead the life which the Lord assigned him and, which, and in which God called him. This is my rule in all, the, in all the churches. So then he goes on to say, if you were already circumcised before you entered Christianity, which didn't really have a name yet, they were people of the way, don't try and deny your circumcision, don't try and get rid of the mark of circumcision. Were you uncircumcised? Don't try and get, uncircum don't try and get circumcised. Let everyone remain in the state in which he was called. If you were a slave, cool, no biggie. Never mind, he says. If you can gain your freedom, go ahead. But in Christ, it's irrelevant. If, um, he's like, because you were bought with a price, because he's saying that whether you're a slave or a freed man or none of the above, we're all purchased by Christ. He's the master of everyone. Um, concerning the unmarried, I have no command of the Lord. I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think, I'm going to read this part because it's important, that in view, because it gives the context to why he was saying he prefers that people remain as himself, this is the section. Um, I think that in view of the present distress, it is well for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek marriage. If you marry, no problem. Um, and you're not sinning, no problem. But those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I mean, brethren, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they had no mourning, etc. Um, for the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife and his interests are divided, and likewise to the woman, um, and I would rather your devotion to the Lord. So this is, now I hope you can understand why St. Paul was saying, I would that you all be like me. There are two aspects to this. An eschatological, end times aspect, and a devotion aspect. So on one level, he's saying marriage is a distraction from total devotion to the Lord in the sense that you now have extra things to care for. 
Okay. So for example, I'm a celibate priest in the St. Paul Brotherhood. My bishop says no to us being parish priests um, because it's a different service. He would rather as general because we can do things that a married priest can't do because we don't have a wife and kids at home. Not because one is better than the other, but it's a different um, ability to be able to do certain things. So part of it is, is this devotion, but it's also because St. Paul really believed that the form of this present world is ending. He literally meant that. We don't need to far reach and make up things that St. Paul thought. No, St. Paul really thought the end was around the corner. He really did. You might ask, why did he think that? Because Jesus told him so. Right? So a day to God is as a thousand years. To St. Paul, he's like, the Lord told me he's coming quickly. And St. Paul was calculating as a human does what quickly means. So he was like, okay, it's around the bend. Right? So part of his advice was saying, God could come any time. Do you really want to get married right now? And so he also said in the same section, okay, if you need to go ahead, there's no sin in it. It's not wrong. Go ahead. But he's just saying, but if you can handle it, cool, handle it. Right? And this is a great spiritual attitude in general. If you can handle it, handle it. If it can't, don't. As long as there's no sin in it, cool. We like overstress like a billion things um, where it's just like, okay, can you handle it? Cool, then handle it and don't complain. If you can't, let's talk about it. No problem, right? Take it easy, as easy. Um, but Paul is single-minded in his goal. It's Christ. Everything is about that. And he himself has laid all things down for Christ. That's why he can speak with authority, because he's practicing what he preaches. And he's not distracted by the world. And that's a precept for all of us, married or not. Are you distracted by the world and its institutions and living like this world is not passing away? Because if so, you're not living properly, regardless of when the Lord comes. St. Paul is actually saying you should have a sort of apathy to the world, but it doesn't govern you in Christ. Your status is in Christ, not in men. He's also saying, I'm going to skip the, the next few verses because I want to, I'm going to plow through chapter eight. It's not as long. St. Paul is saying your, your station and your role don't matter. Don't seek to, to change stuff because in Christ, all are equal. So if you were a slave, Christianity is not calling you to try and become a freedman, the Roman context of it. If you're married, don't seek divorce. If you're celibate, stay celibate. In the words of the greatest saint in history, the great Abba Antony, when you find a place, do not easily leave it. St. Paul is saying this. He's also, St. Paul is saying, if you want to get married, go ahead. He's not attacking anything. He's saying, whatever is not sinful, go for it. But there's a value in staying put. You're allowed to leave. Where there's no sin, go for it. But there is a greatness to staying where you are. And this is beautiful. And I think servants could stand to really learn from this of every kind. 
Are you like that in your work, in your parenting, in your leadership, in your service, in your opinions? Do you give freedom to people? Like St. Paul is freeing them. He's saying, here's my opinion. Here's what's good for you. But if there's no sin, Habibi, go do whatever you want. But here's the value of this. But it's not wrong to do this other thing. I think things would be so different if we dealt with people like that. The only thing to worry about is sin. Be yourself, semicolon, don't sin. But when you stay in a place, when there's constancy, you have the context for growth. You have the, con you have the context for insight. You have the context for knowledge. You have the context for experience. There's a reason why your resume isn't looking good if you switch jobs every three months. There's a red flag even secularly when somebody's resume shows that. Because there's a big question in Mark is why is this person jumpy? Same thing spiritually. So that ends the five to seven section, okay, about, about moral living and, and, and immorality, etc. Chapter eight, we will um, go through quickly. It's a very short chapter, unless you guys want to go. For those, can, can you just, if you want to go, can someone just like tell me to stop? I'll stop if it's too much for people right now. Are we good? Any thumbs up? Um, okay. Sorry, guys. Do, 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 do. I'll skip some of those notes. Um, chapter eight, concerning foods offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That is a Corinthian slogan. This should be in quotes. Some of your Bibles will show it in quotes. Some of them will not. But all of us possess knowledge should be put in quotes. He's quoting the Corinthians. So they're saying we have knowledge. And Paul is saying, yeah, your knowledge puffs up. It's egotistical. But love builds up. He is giving them a counter slogan. Okay, so in response to all of us possess knowledge, St. Paul is saying knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Like read it as a slogan because that's what it is. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if one loves God, God is not known by him. I had shared on Facebook because I was reading some of the patristics for this. There's a beautiful um, quote from, um, uh, who was it? This is going to drive me crazy. Let me check my, my notes. Sorry, credit where credit is due. I cannot find it, and that's going to drive me crazy. It's okay. I shall find it um, and say it. But I'm going to let me just read it to you first. Sorry, it was coming of Alexandria. Got it. Um, oh, thank you, Luke. You already wrote it. Um, education without criticism goes astray. I'm adding the, the first part of it that I didn't put online. Education without criticism goes astray. Beatings and criticisms given education wisdom. He means, of course, he's talking about St. Paul, of course, criticisms offered in love. For an upright heart seeks true knowledge, because he who seeks God will find true knowledge accompanied by righteousness. Those who seek in the right way find peace. I shall, says the apostle, come to know the power, not just the words of the conceited. We read that earlier in, in this epistle, if you remember. Um, he is writing to cudgel those who wear the appearance of wisdom in their own eyes too, without their reality. For the kingdom of God is not to be found in a word. That is, in the word which uses, uses hypothesis to induce persuasion rather than 
the true word, but in power, he said. Right? So St. Clement is saying um, the kingdom of God, he's quoting St. Paul, isn't going to be found with, with cool words, with cool slogans, with cool, cool maxims. It comes in power. But truth is never, or sorry, he says, and again, if anyone imagines that he's acquired some knowledge, he does not yet know as he ought. That's what we just read in verse two. Then St. Clement says, truth is never a matter of opinion. It is the presumption of knowledge. It's people's presumptuousness of thinking they know stuff. That's what puffs off and swells with pride. You don't have to look too far to see that in this current climate. Love, however, is constructive. It moves in the field of truth, not opinion. That is why it is said, if anyone loves, God recognizes him. That's verse three that we just read. So now he comes back to this whole issue of the food. Okay. Now we've talked about this before, that the issue that was going on was that there was food that was offered to idols. What was left over got sold in the market. There are some people who felt comfortable eating food that they were purchasing that had been used in a pagan celebration or sacrifice. And there were those who were saying, absolutely not. How could I eat that? That was offered to demonic gods. Okay. And let's pay attention to how St. Paul deals with this. So St. Paul starts off and he's St. Paul gives the exact same wording um, before I get into his way of doing the problem. Sorry. St. Paul says, my bad. Let me just read this quickly. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, put this in quotes, it's a slogan, an idol has no real existence, end quote. And that, begin quote, there is no God but one, end quote. St. Paul is really letting them have it, right? St. Paul is like, yeah, you guys say this stuff? Yeah, let me say what you say, that's stupid. Four, although there may be so-called gods, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quotes, many lords, quotes, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ whom, whom are all things and through whom we exist. I want to point out something because some people think that St. Paul didn't necessarily see Jesus as God. Note that the language he's using for God the Father and the Lord here are the same. In, in, in that tradition, that's very, very telling. That's not an accident. Anyways. Now, he says, not everyone has this wisdom. So he's, he's like, some people are used to idols and they're used to eating food. So it's, he's like, okay, some of you who were pagans, you used to participate in these events. It was you who were offering to the gods. He's saying, so some of these people, their conscience bothers them because it's too visceral for them, right? It really is to them like they're really offering to a god because of their association with it. Like, for example, one of my friends who's a convert from Islam said, you know, it's very difficult for me not to do ablutions when I first became a Christian. It has very visceral meanings. Because when I hear the Aden, it, has, it had for years a very visceral reaction for me because I participated in that. That's what St. Paul's referring to is that these people were in it. This is not just theory for them. This is reality. He goes, so for some of these people, no, it, it hurts them to, 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 to eat from this food. Um, and so he's saying, so for those of you who know that it's no big deal, who know that these idols are fake, and you have this so-called knowledge, well, be careful of the conscience of your brother, who their conscience does bother them, and they, these so-called weak conscious people, are bothered by it. 
He's saying because then you, by your knowledge, right, um, might destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And consequently, your so-called knowledge is a sin against your brother, wounding their conscience, and consequently, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. That's in that chapter. So look at how St. Paul pastorally deals with this situation. So different from the riots we hold online in the, 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 the arena of, of public opinion. opinion. Instead of being stirred by the emotions of each side of the argument, St. Paul is looking for objectivity. So St. Paul starts off with saying, okay, idols aren't real. Gotcha. There are tons of gods, etc. We don't believe in those. There's one God. We don't believe in those. Okay, cool. Statement of fact. Then he's saying, okay, let's put it another fact. Nothing created is bad. Meat's not bad. What I eat has nothing to do with my relationship with God. That seems to be another one of the slogans of the Corinthians, right? The so-called sophistication we all have of being like, um, I'm spiritual, not religious, I'm whatever. He's saying like, oh, how could some material affect me and God? He's saying, yeah, cool, I know that. But, he says, you sophisticated and know-it-all Corinthians who are so intelligent, you who are speaking the language of knowledge and sophistication, are missing the language of the gospel. Love. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's a great slogan. Your sophistry is nothing next to love. And here's the monumental difference. A theology of knowledge, and I, I mean, I mean knowledge in the air quotes that St. Paul's talking about right now. I don't mean knowledge in general. Aims at a particular kind of liberation. Being able to do whatever one wants. Here's the danger. That focuses on human rights. Having the right to do something. That's why the Corinthians were saying things like, all things are lawful. Saying, I can do whatever I want. They're saying, I have the right to do whatever I want. And Paul says, yes, you do. You do have the ability to do whatever you want. But that's not the point. Love is a totally different language because love bows to others. Love doesn't assert itself. Love bows, which we're going to get into in, in chapter 13, the famous chapter. Love bows to others, putting others' rights and needs before our own. It doesn't demand things. It doesn't demand rights. It gives up rights. That's the difference in the theology. A theology of knowledge where I want to know something to be allowed to do something is a self-seeking theology. It's anthropocentric, it's man-centered, it's humanistic. A theocentric one is a love-centered one. It's a giving up of love. Cruciform love shows this. 
Because the Lord took on the cross, even though he had the right, if we're going to talk about rights, to demand worship. God never demands worship. Ever. He gives us the freedom to do whatever the heck we want. He has never said, bow before me. But cruciform love looked at humanity and bowed to humanity rather than the opposite. True love is when one's rights are denied for the the exaltation of the other. And it must, as St. Clement said, move in the realm of truth. The only circumscription, the only perimeter that can put around love is truth, which is synonymous with righteousness, rightness. I can't do wrong in the name of love. That's the only limit on love, not wrong. True love looks at the implications of one's decisions and behaviors and how it affects others rather than saying, I can do whatever I want. It's thinking about how what I want to do may affect others. And that's why he's saying that you're sinning against your brethren. Because he says, you're laying down of rights by calling them brethren. He's saying that they're your family. Everyone is your family. When I look at the exercise of rights and freedoms online and on the news, Um, it seems to me that we're reliving the context of this epistle all over again. It's the exact same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone is demanding. Nobody is sacrificing. And nobody is thinking about the exercising of one's rights, about how the exercising of one's rights affects their brethren. Right? We're just, we're looking for my brethren to bow to me. We're not looking for how can I bow to my brethren, myself included. I'm not just pointing fingers. We're, we're, I'm, I'm guilty anyway. Um, so to return to the main issue, those proponents of eating meat were being self-centered. Their exercise of freedom, their exercise of freedom has become sinful Please pay attention here. Their exercise of freedom has become sinful, even though, even though Paul acknowledged that the acts themselves were not sinful. See, see what's going on here? He's like, no, 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 you're right. That's not sinful, and that's not sinful. What's made this sinful is that you are self-seeking You're not loving. There's nothing cruciform in this. And therefore, you are putting down your brethren. Their decisions were causing their brethren to to stumble and possibly to leave. And so you're sinning against Christ who died for them. That's why he escalated. He's like, okay, not just them. Now it's against Christ. Because Christ died for them and you're severing them from Christ. To bring this to like a modern example, let's say you learn some theology or biblical knowledge that makes you understand something. Let me use an example. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, was most likely from an academic perspective, not written by St. Paul. 
okay? That means nothing about its inspiration. It just may not have been written by St. Paul. Now, it may have been, it may have been written by St. Paul, but it probably was not. Now, if I, as a priest or a servant or a Sunday school teacher or whatever, if I keep on promulgating that, if I keep on saying that, and I encounter someone who is scandalized by that, right? Somebody who's like, is Abuna, how Abuna, what do you mean? Are you saying the Bible is not inspired? Because of whatever it is that they think it means if it wasn't St. Paul. Because in his mind or her mind, he thought it was written by St. Paul and he received that it was handwritten by Paul and that if it wasn't, then his way of thinking becomes, oh my goodness, how many other lies have been told me? And his world comes crashing down because I care so much, apparently, that maybe it wasn't St. Paul. I might make this person walk away from the faith. All because I want to show my freedom of thought, my sophistication, my knowledge. Is it intrinsically wrong for me to question that St. Paul wrote it? No, there's no sin there, as St. Paul is saying. There's no dogma about it. But when I take that knowledge that puffs up, that I'm so proud of myself because I know that maybe it wasn't, and I beat my Christian brother or sister over the head with it and cause them to have an existential crisis. What am I doing? Who is this for? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If I go to someone and I beat them up for their understanding of rites and rituals, don't walk barefoot on Sunday or about women's periods, I'm so illumined. I might be saying something that is full of knowledge and destroying my brethren's confidence in Christ. To what end? To what end, St. Paul challenges? For knowledge? For my ego? So that people know that I'm smart? People know that I'm academic? Those, no offense. That's not the cross. That is not the cross. This is not the cruciform way of love. Humility of speech is what we need. Humility of speech. Cruciform speech. Speech that bows to the person in front of me, not demanding. Speech that gives and edifies, builds up. Edification means building up. Not destroying, not interrogating, not humiliating. That is not cruciform speech. The gospel says, give up your meat. Give up your speech so that your brother and you live. A cruciform life results in the resurrection of yourself and your brother. It's beautiful. Glory be to God forever. Amen. In the next chapter, St. Paul will point at himself to teach what it means to exercise one's freedom in love, what that means. So we'll deal with that then. Um, uh, let me check if there were any questions. Uh, I'm just going to the top. Um, okay, uh, questions. Um, how do I know my calling in general? So the calling in general is already the calling of every Christian by mere virtue of their baptism, which is to be a son 
or daughter of Christ. And that is not a small calling. Right? That's why our, our daily um, prayer, again, in Ephesians, that we pray in Egbeah, is that we walk worthy of the vocation with we are called. That's our general calling to all. Now, God also endows all of us, every single person, with gifts. Anyone among you who says you don't have a gift is a liar. No offense. But it's just true. Right? That's why when our Lord gave the parable of the talents, there was no one in any of the parables of the talents to whom he gave zero. Everyone has a talent. So part of our calling is actually in our gifts. To the one who can comfort, comfort. Um, we're going to talk more about gifts in this book because there's a whole section on spiritual gifts coming up. Um, and so part of your individual calling, the finding of your calling, is in the discovery of your gifts and the using of them. That is for men, women, slave, freed, everyone, is, as St. Paul is saying. That is for absolutely everybody. Um, so that's our calling in general, is your Christian calling to live the gospel with sincerity and truth um, and to be faithful to your gifts. How do I know about a specific calling to a service or rank in the church? Because God will tell you. I firmly believe in that. Um, it's helpful to have a spiritual guide to help you discern the calling. But what I received is that it's not a touchy-feely, oh, I feel it in my heart. You know, everybody sees me in this way. That can be part of it. I'm not, I'm not actually mocking that. That, that. That's part of it. There's an internal calling and there's a social calling. Um, but usually the way that a true calling should work is that a person is already that thing and the people just name it. It's beautiful. So for example, somebody who has a particular charism of the spirit of discernment, that's a charism, it's a gift. Not everybody has it. The church doesn't say, yo, you come over here. Let's call you discerner. The person is just already discerning, and we all realize that that person has a gift of discernment. Right? Just think about real life. That's how it's always worked. Right? Like, think of, of, of mentors at church that you went to. You just went to them. But you didn't say, we have appointed so-and-so as mentor for you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? It just happened. Um, when it comes to rank in the church, ecclesiastical ranks, like priesthood, bishops, that kind of thing, and monasticism, in my view, um, there's an internal calling and there's an external calling that's why for example in the orthodox church even though we don't always follow it properly it's still in the custom and rituals of the church i don't know if you've ever paid attention to the rituals of ordination of a priest the first line is not by the bishop it's by the archdeacon and the archdeacon who was more important than priest to some extent in the early church says we announce the ordination of so-and-so in the Lord. And then the congregation respond with, worthy, worthy, worthy. Or if they wish, they can respond with, anoxios, and say, unworthy. And then the service does not continue. If the people say, oxios, then the bishop continues. So part of the, the, the clerical calling involves the will of the people that they recognize the pastoral nature of the person on whom is the laying of hands. It wasn't a matter of going to seminary and getting a degree, no matter how nice that is. That was not how the early church functioned, and I don't think it should be now. It doesn't harm to send somebody after a calling to get a religious education, no problem. I have no objection to that. 
but that the, the, that the fundamental basis of the calling is not academia. It is the recognition of the pastoral spirit which already abides in that person. Part of the calling is the bishop's recognition by his grace of apostolicity of the Holy Spirit that he has received by his own laying on of hands that goes back to the time of the apostles. This is a big deal, guys. Like, it still gives me goosebumps. To me, one of the most, like, overwhelming parts of my own ordination, to be quite honest, was not the hand on my head. That was a big deal. It was a part of the ritual that I didn't know. When two minutes before going for communion, I was being yelled at by the now Amma Abraham saying, you have to kneel in front of Sayyidina and open your mouth and say, I open my mouth and receive to myself a spirit. And then Sayyidina blew in my mouth to give me of the same spirit that he received from his language of hands, that he received from those before him, that they received from Christ. So part of the calling is the recognition of the bishop of the pastoral spirit within this person, the priestly nature of the person in front of him that he lays his hands on. And third is that the Lord tells you, the person, the nominee, I am calling you to this service. Usually the person already knows within themselves that they're being called. The problem, that's why I'm saying you need a spiritual guide, is that sometimes we're calling ourselves, or we want it, or people are praising us, or they think this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And that's why chapter 7 was mostly important of saying, recognize that all of these things are gifts. They're all gifts. They're just different gifts, but they're all gifts. Actually, I'll, I'll tell a personal story um, that's related. Not, not exactly what you're asking, but it's related. I was having um, an ego uh, pity party once. And um, Abuna Antunis Sriani, God repose his soul, a great saint of our time. Um, he always called when I was being stupid. So he called. Um, and I was like, Abuna, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I do this and this and this and this. I am not worthy to be a priest. How can I call myself a priest? And Abuna was just like, are you done? Um, he didn't say that, but he sounded like that. And I was just like, he goes, who cares, man? Like, I, like you shouldn't sin because sin is wrong. But this has absolutely nothing to do with your priesthood. He's like, because, and this is, this is the reason I'm telling the story, because... You have a rich dad. He goes, Abu Ghani Okay? He goes, Your dad is rich. And he gave all of his kids, not just you, sorry, with whatever you think you are, all of his kids received gifts. You received a gift called priesthood. It was a gift. It had nothing to do with how good you are or not good you are. It's just a gift. Other people got different gifts that you don't have. They're just gifts. They're all for his kingdom. They're all for his kids. They are all for edification, I would add. Okay? So, um, in my view, a person shouldn't try and discern such a calling. That's my personal view. A person should live life the way that every person should live life according to their Christian calling. And if God wants anybody, he will tell them. That's, that's where I sit on it. Otherwise, a person can become a major operator of pure ego and suffer immensely psychologically, socially, spiritually, as well as their families, because they're constantly thinking about whether or not they're called. It's, it, it can be very dangerous. That's my personal opinion. 
Um, can you clar clarify your opinion about the church granting divorce? It appears the church has accepted certain reasons to grant it outside the main ones mentioned in the scripture. Yeah, so what the church is saying is never that divorce is right. It's simply giving pastoral absolution. Where we're clearly running into the problems is once you make exceptions, what's the standard? So all I'm saying, I'm trying to just point at, we better use the proper language for what we're doing so that we don't give a wrong teaching. Like that's, that's what it is. For example, to a parallel, the church does not ever think abortion is okay. Why am I using that as a comparison is because sometimes what you'll hear is abortion is not allowed except when the mother's life is at risk. No, that is not what the church is actually saying. The church is saying abortion is always wrong. We are not excommunicating a woman who has gotten an abortion because her life was in danger, is what we're saying. It's a very, it's a, it's a different wording. In the same way, for example, if, if, if a person is called to conscription in a war and is compelled to choose between his life and the enemies, we're not saying in his case the killing was good. We're saying we're not excommunicating such a person, right? So I'm just saying let's use proper language when we teach because we might accidentally teach wrong. And then it looks like the church is saying this is a good reason for divorce. We're not. We're not saying that. Um, or at least we shouldn't be. Um, in regards to freedom, how do we balance the giving of freedom with discipline or preventing something... Um, Something writing. I think there's um, words in here that might be an autocorrect from the computer because they're not going in there. Can you uh, clarify? In regards to freedom, how do we balance the giving of freedom with discipline or preventing something? Okay, no, no, no. I think there's some auto text that went in there, such as a parent with their child. So everyone also has um a, 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 a role in the family or in the church um so for example as a priest i have a duty to uphold proper teaching okay so if a servant in a parish that i'm responsible for is teaching wrongly um i can't leave them to that freedom that's that's not because that's sin it's wrong, right? And so the balance of freedom has in it, what's my role? Am I a son? Am I a daughter? Am I a parent? Am I a servant? Am I a priest? What am I? And so there are responsibilities that can come with a particular rank that I have to be faithful to as well. Um, and so the balance of freedom with discipline comes between the honoring of a person's will, but also being responsible for what your particular role is. So for example, the way that I approach a friend who is doing something wrong would be different how I would approach a, a Sunday school kid of mine. One's my quote-unquote equal and one is my quote-unquote subordinate, sorry, to use that language, right? They're different, they're different roles. For example, at work, you're not going to correct your coworker the same way that you would correct somebody who reports to you, the same way that you're going to approach your boss. 
right? Like there's an understanding of what is my, my, my role and being faithful to it. But if I view everybody as my family, right? That adds another dimension. Because then what I might say to my family is say, I'm worried about your exercising of freedom of what it may do to you. Forgive me if I'm out of line, but I'm speaking because I care, right? Then the third part that I would say is the context of relationship. Our freedom in relationship differs depending on the relationship that we have. Someone very close to me, I can say something differently than somebody who's maybe not as, as, as close. They might not receive it the same way. Um, what is your opinion about two people getting married that are not mature mentally or spiritually emotionally? My opinion is they shouldn't get married. If objectively they're not, then objectively I think they shouldn't get married because then we're setting up their divorce. Right? But that's why to me the question when somebody wants to get married in the church is why do you want to get married in the church? Because you can go get married secularly. Why do you want to be married in the church? To bring back the focus on, on Christ. That, that, that to me is, is the discussion uh, to have. Um, how can we get rid of the feeling of guilt? By just staying in the relationship and by not focusing on your wrong all the time. Okay, if I wrong a friend of mine, if I just walk away from the friendship because I wrong the person, I'm just going to have my guilt amplified, right? And if all I think about is my wrong, my guilt is going to only increase. And if all I do are actions of guilt-ridden type behaviors, my guilt is only going to increase. So the easiest way is to just love, to offer yourself up to whoever it is that you feel guilty towards, to give right? To serve, to be at their feet, to be cruciform is what we've been talking about, right? And as St. Paul says, whatsoever things are beautiful, pure, true, lovely, all these things, think on those things, right? What's more profitable for you? To think about how filthy and disgusting you think you are or how awesome and loving and kind the person that you wronged is, right? Just shift your focus, Right? If you spend your time on the negative, you'll grow in negative. Um, how can we continue the pursuit of knowledge without growing in pride? By ascribing knowledge to whom knowledge proceeds from. God. That's why I'm like, this whole your truth, my truth business, whatever that means, it's not yours. It's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, it has nothing to do with you or me. It's true only because it is true. So the humility comes from by ascribing to the source of truth, the truth himself, right? Like, can you imagine somebody showing off that they know what an appendix is? Like, sorry, like, just to make it, like, weird, like... Okay, cool, good for you. Did you invent the appendix? Does the appendix exist because of you? Like, okay, you found it out, you read it in a book. Did you write the book? To the guy who wrote the book, did you write what was already there or did you invent it? At the end of the day, the object was always there. You knew it, didn't know it, doesn't matter. 
Now let's say, oh, but I'm excited because I discovered it. Who designed the system in which you were able to discover it? At some point, everything exists because there's a creator. And so all logic, all logikon, proceeds from the logos. The logos is the mind and rationale of God. So all knowledge, all true knowledge is the Lord himself. Right? And so it's to always send it back to where it came from. Um, and, then, and then we'll even know how to use the knowledge in love because that's what true knowledge did. The true logos is love and gave himself. Right? So we'll, we'll learn how to emulate the way that he did. Um, in regarding, and sorry, this will be the last question because I've got to go for liturgy uh, shortly. Um, in regard to guarding the feelings of others when it comes to something like ascetic or spiritual practices, how do we find the line to be drawn with that? Should there be one? I feel like it gets difficult to, un to balance and like I would end up doing nothing spiritual as a result of not knowing what someone else is thinking or wanting to turn them away. No, what I mean is that the line is where my decision directly affects another person. I'm not saying don't even do it then. I'm saying it needs to be considered and discussed then. Right? So for example, like, like, like an example we used in a previous conversation, if I were to decide that I'm going to take my vow of silence, my, my, my exercise, my asceticism of silence, every time my parents want to talk to me, right? Like that's not okay. Right? If I decide I, right? The, the Holy Spirit like came upon me and I decided I'm going to give 90% of my salary to the poor and I have a wife and kids at home. Not, not okay, right? Versus I'm not going to eat till three. That might not affect anybody, right? And also, and that's why St. Paul said, with consent from the other. Because even your other, like your other ascetic practices can be done with consent from the other of saying, don't worry, I'm still going to prepare lunch for the kids. I'm just not going to eat till three. Is that okay with you? No problem, right? Or it's like, okay, but like, I don't know, whatever. That, that creates its own discussion. And so where it affects others, there may need to be a discussion, but it's only in the case where it directly affects others. Other than that, your asceticism with your spiritual guide um, can be determined without having to really worry much about, uh, about other people. Love of God, the Father, grace of God, and Son, the community is with you all. Go in peace, the peace will be with you all. Have a good night, everyone. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.